Welcome to Hallel Fellowship, found on the internet at hallel.info. That's H-A-L-L-E-L dot I-N-F-O. We hope you are encouraged by the following recorded Bible study to look deeper into every word that proceeds from the mouth of God and how they were lived out in the life of Yeshua HaMashiach, often called Jesus the Christ. Our Torah portion today is Beishalach, uh, which is Genesis. It goes from chapter uh, 32, uh, starting verse 4, uh, all the way through uh, 36. I have a whole bunch of little spiel stuff to talk about here today, but before I go into my commentary, any questions or comments that you have, you can uh, raise up or ask. Go right ahead. Okay, like the name um, in verse 4, Yehovah Rapha, that's Oh, holy Obama! It, it, so it sounds like it's Obama. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good point, actually. Is it the some of the Arabic names? Actually, biblical names you can call, I, I couldn't call that are are still very very common within the Middle East as well as in uh, Obama's ancestral ancestral home. Um, it's still very common in, in to you. It would be very similar. I think uh, there's a there's a few there's a few names. Obama, of course, in Hebrew means it's a bima. It's the it's the like a, like a heaven or or, or a, um, a, a elevated place, high place, a high place. Yeah, right. Mm-hmm. So it would be a fairly common common name, but yeah, it does have a similarity, doesn't it? Any comments or questions regarding this Torah portion we get to discuss before I go to my spiel? Because I may not talk about whatever you want to know, and even though, I don't know the answer, but you still ask me anyway. Any questions at all? <laughs> I'll make one up. No, I'm joking. No, you know, share with, any any questions or comments? All right, so we'll go into our, our, our discussion here today. There's a whole lot of here in, in this Torah portion. Getting pages here. <clears throat> There's certain details here. We'll go through, uh, uh, some of us obviously talked about here in this Torah portion. We'll discuss, this is, yeah, discuss a little bit about the Hoth Torah portion, which is uh, Obadiah, as well as a little bit in b- the book of Matthew today, uh, discuss some of the commentary and uh, details to flesh out some of this and explain a little bit why it's in our Torah. And why it's important to learn. <clears throat> All right. So to begin with, <clears throat> we start out this Torah portion with Jacob trying to essentially make a reconciliation with his brother Esau. Now, as we already know, with the past of how they separated, it was quite clear that God intended Esau and Jacob to be separated, much like he had done so with Ishmael and Isaac when they were young. They would grow up and, and live differently, or separately, I should say. Uh, this, however, is a very important example to us. And we heard the statement of holding the whole idea of you know, loving your enemy and kind of such, and, and, and which is you know, pretty hard to do for most instances. Well, in this instance, Jacob is, is actually practicing that instruction, the love of your enemy. And we say, well, but, but, but yeah, there are a lot of buts. Yeah, Esau was not necessarily a good man, per se. Uh, note that he's coming after him with 400 men. Now, don't uh, kid yourself. 400 men, that is an army in those days. If you recall what uh, Abraham went with, it was 300 and, who was it, 16, I think it was, that he went and defeated, what, four, four kings? There's four kings. Defeated them at night and to crush them and recapture the people of Sodom and return Lot. So 400 men is not nothing. These aren't, you know, um, Kick back, relax, enjoy yourselves, your partiers. These are soldiers. That's what they do. You, you wouldn't come after with 400 men. 
So uh, it is fair and just that Jacob would be very concerned. Uh, I would be concerned too, in particular when there is a history between the two brothers and Esau swore he would kill him. So yeah, I would be very concerned. But what I want to point out to you that Jacob and Esau, though they are brothers, they are also an- enemies. They disagree with each other. They didn't, did not wish or don't wish to live with or agree with one another. Uh, it is uh, quite clear in our text here, our 12 portion describes afterward that both men had too much acquired uh, possessions to dwell together. Although that is a secondary reason as to why they did not dwell together. And we'll get to the reasons more importantly in a few minutes. But anyway, so we start off with, with 400 men. Uh, it is right to be worried uh, as far as what, what's going on. But I want to point something out to you. Jacob learned a few things in the 20 years he was with Laban. Let's discuss a few things he learned. All right. When he first left Esau, Esau was swore to kill him once Isaac had passed away. Jacob went, obviously, and took off to Laban. He described, as we discussed last 12 portion when, Je- when Jeff was covering this, he described what occurred to him to the events to let him up to reach Laban's house. And Laban's response was, yeah, you're definitely my brother, my, my flesh, because you're essentially, I, I understand who you come from. And in my daily personal opinion, Laban said, yeah, I, I, would, I would be a dishonest person just like you are, because he was a dishonest person. But more importantly, Laban essentially gave Jacob a heavy dose of dishonesty, right? We know the story about the wives, right? We know the story about the changing of the wages. So Laban and also the intent Laban had at killing and capturing all of the supplies back, killing Jacob and taking it back if God had not intervened, as Laban pointed out to Jacob as Jacob had fled, said, had your God not come to me last night to spare you, I wouldn't have. I mean, he would have killed him. Wiped Jacob out and taken his children, Jacob's children, that is, and his daughters, Laban's daughters, and returned home with all the possessions. So Laban's intent was to destroy Jacob and take everything he had back. That is Laban's nature. He was a dishonest individual. So over the past previous 20 years, up to get to that point, uh, Jacob had experienced the character of Laban. Was he a good character? No. Was he a useful character in teaching Jacob something? Absolutely. Note how then Jacob replied or responded, I should say, with Esau. Now, if you have 400 men coming after you, what are you going to do? Most of us turn tail and run. I have my wife, I have my kids, I have a few servants along the way. Get out of here. Flee. What does Jacob do? Well, he does a few things. We're going to discuss the things he does. So first of all, uh, keep in mind, uh, try, try your best not to confuse uh, East, uh, Jacob Jacob's, I guess you you could argue, uh, outwitting, outsmarting Esau when Jacob was younger. Don't confuse that outsmarting, outwitting Esau with the same type of treatment that Jacob received from Laban. They are similar, but they're not quite the same. And that Jacob was truly outwitted by Laban, and Esau was not actually tricked. Esau was went through the process with regard to the birthright, and when it comes to the blessing that he did not receive, that's actually as Rebecca pointed out. That is her responsibility. It's on her head, not upon Jacob. 
So they are a little bit different as far as how the men interact with one another and, and their justification for one another's beliefs or arguments or disagreements with one another, not liking each other. And that's fine. They, there are certain important subtle differences, but they do exist. But the most important thing is that what Jacob learned, because as you and I both know, we all know that we are responsible for the walk we are on, right? Between us and our God, not between one another, not between me and you, or you and each other, it makes a difference. Not even between you and your, and your children, or even technically you and your spouse. Your walk is between you and God. So Jacob has his walk too, and it is distinctly different than his, his wife's walks. Note that when they abandoned Laban and fled, what did Rachel do? Took the gods with her. Clearly, she has a different viewpoint of God than Jacob did. All right, so there's a difference between the wives, their, their, their relationship with God, and Jacob's. Though they are married, they're distinctly different. And there could be a lot of reasons why they're distinctly different. Obviously, there's an enormous age difference between Jacob and his wives. Enormous meaning he's old enough to be their grandfather when they married him. So <laughs> they're, 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 there's a huge difference in their ages. Um, but it, we will go into details of all of that as to why there may be some kind of a, 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 a disconnect between the two of them, between the, the, his wives and him and Jacob. But let's focus a little bit on what Jacob learned. He learned obviously at being tricked, but now he has an enemy to address. So unlike the previous enemies, with Esau he fled, with Laban he fled, now he's returned to Esau, he doesn't flee. He goes, goes toward, he engages. That's a hard thing to do. The decision he has to make. Now, could Jacob have bypassed Esau and not notified him of his return to land of Canaan? Yes. Esau lived in Seir. They're the same place. Jacob, Esau lived in the Edom, what we call Edomite territory, which is much further uh, east than the land of Canaan. Jacob could have easily returned, been living out, hanging out at dad's place, for potentially years without Esau ever knowing. But he didn't. Even before he reached his father's household, Jacob said, we need to address this first. We need to reconcile first. That should ring a bell with most Christians with the words of Messiah. When you have something against your brother, leave your offering there and go reconcile with your brother, right? We've all heard that. We know what that means. So Jacob has not fully returned to Bethel yet. When he realizes the, the place for his offering, he realizes he must reconcile with his brother first. Fix that first. Is it scary? Absolutely. Because Esau swore he would kill him. Now, Esau swore originally 20 years earlier he'd kill him once Isaac died. Isaac, of course, still alive this time. But still, we don't know the, the heart of Esau. I may have said, okay, I'm tired of waiting. We're not sure. It doesn't really matter. So let's go to Matthew and discuss Matthew 5, which discusses these characteristic traits that Esau, sorry, that Jacob is displaying to Esau, his brother. Now, Matthew 5, of course, covers lots of different stuff. We're not covering everything. It, it, it's quite extensive. We're covering certain portions of it, though. So let's jump initially to uh, verse 22. And if I verse 22, this is, this, this is obviously, uh, uh, we're jumping in the middle of, of 
of uh, uh, attitude or, or, or ways of life or ways of viewing other people and how you conduct yourself, as I was discussing here. And these are obviously cherry-picked by myself as far as what we're covering today, because this is where we're addressing specifically what we're talking about with Jacob and Esau and the relationship with an enemy versus a non-enemy. So in this case, Matthew 5, jump to verse, uh, this is the whole idea of murder and such, uh, jump to verse 22. I say to you, whoever is angry with his brother shall be in danger of the judgment. Whoever says to his brother, Racha, shall be in danger of the council. But whoever says you fool shall be in danger of, of fire. Therefore, if you bring your gift to the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go your way. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. So this is an important principle. I'm not going through all of it. We're, we're chirping certain sections. The important principle so far, we have a character that, that Jacob is displaying. And that before he reaches his, the promise, he, when Jacob left, you hear the sword ladder thing up in heaven coming down again? That was in Bethel. And Jacob swore to God, hey, if you get me back here, I will offer you, be my God, and I'll be your servant for the rest of my life. Before Jacob goes there to, to, to finish off the agreement, God is basically inspiring her, him, or maybe he just knows. He has to reconcile that, that, that with Esau before he completes that offering. So he's doing that to reconcile, even though. Jacob realizes it may kill him. And his wife, wives, and all of his children. Now, think about that for a minute. To reconcile with God, your enemy may kill you first. To accomplish reconciliation. That's a strange viewpoint. The enemy, it is more valuable in God's viewpoint to reconcile what, even if it means your death, than it is to offer to him first. How much more valuable does God actually rec- expect or, or want or desire the reconciliation component? Clearly, it's worth more than your own life. So that's what Jacob's fear is, because he realizes Esau has an army of 400 men coming after him. This is a risk of a high, high risk for him. But it's more important to do so. Rather than flee and run, he engages it head on. Jump down also in Matthew 5, a little further on in verse 43, this idea of loving somebody. We heard discusses the whole love your enemy, hit your neighbor thing. Or hit your, uh, sorry, love your enemy, <coughs> hate your neighbor. Uh, verse 43, also in Matthew 5, it says, you, shall, you have heard it said, you should love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Of course, this is a pull from the Torah portion that. This is Torah portion, but later Torah portions in the book of Deuteronomy. Um, but verse 44, but I say to you, love your enemies and bless those who curse you. Do good to those who hate you and pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you, that you may be sons of your father in heaven. For he makes his son, that makes the sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just, the unjust. For if you love those who love you and what reward have you? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? If you greet your brethren only, what do you do more than others? Do not even the tax collectors do so? Then we shall be perfect, just as your Father in heaven is perfect. This is an interesting concept to discussing here. But what is Jacob actually doing? How is he practicing this philosophy? Now, granted, he does not have this, this Torah instruction in him, but he knows because God told us when he was discussing with Abraham, Abraham was going to instruct his children and his grandchildren everything that God wanted. 
That's why God said, I trust Abraham. And we know that Abraham, Jacob was about 15 years old or so when Abraham died. So Abraham was well old enough to be able to instruct both Isaac and Ishmael, of course, as well as Jacob and Jacob's brother Esau, to, to instruct them all in what the ways of God are. So Jacob has a good foundation through his father, as well as through his grandfather, what is proper, what is expected of him in conduct and viewpoint of God. It's well established. So in this instance, though Jacob does not have the Torah's instruction, he has his grandfather's instruction, the heritage of this is how we conduct ourselves. Therefore, we must reconcile. And this is how we love even those who hate us. Again, a hard thing to do. Now, we did know that Esau wants or wanted, sorry, wanted Jacob dead 20 years earlier, roughly 20 years earlier. So if 20 years earlier, Esau was, was planning to kill him. Well, now we have the time to reconcile. And what is Abraham? Clearly, since God didn't tell Jacob to do this, Abraham would have instructed Jacob, this is how we live our lives and conduct ourselves. This is what we must do. He decided to reconcile. And I imagine in my own Dale Agee's personal opinion, that instruction would have come from Abraham to Jacob because of what happened between Ishmael and Isaac. He saw his sons and what their lives were like. He saw his wife and Hagar, what their lives were like. That enmity between them was a problem. Abraham, through experience alone, would have told him, your brother, you and your brother have to stay together, have to be reconciled with one another at some point in your lives. You cannot remain separate. Just like eventually, Ishmael and Isaac were reconciled, in a form at least, in the fact that both came together to bury their father, and they both seemed to have a pretty work, a good working relationship with one another in the same area in which they lived. So there's no indication that Isaac and Ishmael had, had animosity toward one another. But there is, obviously, between Esau and Jacob, heavy animosity, and that needs to be fixed. So this loving your enemy, uh, as far as uh, not, you love your neighbor too, but as far as not hating your enemy, what is Jacob's technique or method? This is prior, by the way, prior to his encounter with the angel. This is, he's playing this out before he has this wrestling with God thing. So in Jacob's instruction, what does he do? He starts paying, essentially, Esau off. Here, how this? His droves of animals and tricking him as far as I hear. I'm not sure the spacing between one drove to the next. It's common tradition as far as each animal drove that they, they kick, a, kick up enough dust and cloud and, and such until you can't see how big they actually are until you get there and you don't see the drove behind them, how big it is. That, so tradition says they had to have a space where enough cloud and dust was kicked up that Esau couldn't see past all of them. That the first drove's dust would conceal where and how big the next drove was so they could just say, oh, they're right behind me and not actually see from a distance who it was. So I don't know how many, what the spacing was, and I, I'm not, I wasn't there. But it's commonly taught that there was enough spacing to where dust was kicked up so Esau couldn't see past each individual drove to verify that one wasn't to tell the truth of what that they were not, that they were concealing from him how quickly he was actually showing up. Anyhow, so Jacob does something. He tries to appease him. And this is what I'm bringing your attention to again. What did he use to appease him with? He used things that Esau could understand. Now think about that for a minute. 
you are appeasing your enemy with supplies and things that they value. Now, let's contrast that to humans' normal behavior. I appease my enemy by convincing them I was right, by trying to explain myself away. This is what I'm actually doing. Is, that is not the method Jacob uses to appease his enemy. He does not spend his effort trying to justify. So what was really with mom's idea, none of that stuff came out of his mouth. It was, this is the, the terms Esau understands in terms of what is valuable, the form, obviously these animals that are being sent to him, and the bowing down to him seven times leading up to him as he approached closer and closer and closer. Esau did not need the explanation what mom once convinced him to do. Did not need the justification from Jacob saying it, but I was actually right because God said none of that stuff. He used terms Esau could understand. Why? Why didn't he use the justification? Why didn't he try to explain himself and try to make Esau understand it and reason with inside of his reasoning and, and, and cognitive behavior? Say, okay, now I get the justification. Because it doesn't work. It doesn't work. You don't do that. A man convinced against his will is the same opinion still. The same, it, it, it's, it's consistent. Esau is not going to see reason or, or comprehend your excuses and your logic as why you are somehow right. It doesn't matter. Let's put this in the terms of uh, the kingdoms later on in, in Judah's, Judah's history and as well as Israel too. When a greater force, uh, by the way, uh, don't, don't, don't kid yourself. Esau's 400 men is a large group compared to Jacob and his children and probably a few servants he had. If there was a war between them, I don't think Jacob would be a normal war that God did intervene with. There would not have been a survivor of Jacob's household, other than, of course, he tried to divide himself up into camps and hopefully that one would run while they were busy slaughtering the other one, which is not really pleasant, but you know, that's what his plan was. Um, so there was not uh, a, a military strength with Jacob. So Jacob has reason to believe that the only way he's going to survive this encounter is not through grabbing your swords and trying to convince your brother he was wrong. You enjoy this encounter and survive it by appeasing and relaxing your bro the brother's hatred, Esau's hatred toward Jacob. That's an important technique. Now let's jump that to the kings because the kings did the same thing, but God condemned them for it. This is interesting. So we have Jacob who tried to appease his brother through gifts. Do you recall what some of those kings did and that they came from descendants of David? How they appease other kingdoms who came to invade and to attack. They gave them money, lots and lots and lots of money. The things the kings value, right? They were, yeah, they, they, they say, hey, you're going to kill me. Well, here's lots of stuff. Take, take, take. But God wasn't pleased with them. We ask ourselves, why is that? Why is it, why is it okay for Jacob to do, but not okay for the kings to do? Simple answer. Guess where the kings got their money from? God's house. They took it from the temple. So then if I say, oh, hold on, great, strong, mighty kingdom is going to kill me, I'll go pay you. God, I'm stealing from you because <laughs> God's actually paying it. Here you go. So now put yourself in God's shoes. Wait a minute. King of whatever, Judah, whatever your name is, because there's a whole bunch of them. Um, 
instead of you appeasing him with your stuff, you made me appease him with my stuff by taking from me. So as if, as if I'm afraid of this guy, so I'm the one paying for it. Yeah, that doesn't work so well. <laughs> uh, David points that out when he was buying uh, the, 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 the ox, and two oxen, carts, and, and then the field for the, for the slaughter. He said, hey, uh, there's no use in giving an offering if it costs me nothing. You can't do that. Well, in Jacob's case, it costs him a lot. These are valuable animals. These are, these are expensive things to have. Was not Laban shocked and surprised, Jacob's own father-in-law, was not he shocked and surprised at the, at the, the 10 camels that, that, that uh, Abraham sent with a load of stuff? He was surprised because camels are expensive. Well, he just sent a whole bunch of them to, 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 to Esau for free. Here you go. So that's one component, but there's this additional component, additional aspect to these gifts that Jacob's giving, which I want you to think about too, just to comprehend in your mind. We're not discussing this in too much detail, but just think about it. Um, these gifts, these animals, God gave them to Jacob to begin with. He worked for them, but God blessed them. These are actually a blessing to both Jacob and Esau because they are actually family. When God blessed one brother, that brother shared the blessing with his other brother even though Esau had plenty of his own. He still shared it. So it shows a lot about the condition and the heart, mind, and soul of Jacob. To understand reconciliation is very, very important, more vital to God than worship of God, which is interesting to think about as far as the sacrifices and offerings you give, and how to appease your enemy who wants you dead. Don't appease them through words, through convincing arguments, through force its terms that anyone understands and subservient to them. All right. And sharing what God's blessed you with. The three major components. Now Jacob was not a fool. He didn't hang out with Esau for very long, did he? He knew Esau's heart. Those four men weren't there because they wanted to do a dance. They had to do some war, some fighting. It is not wise to hang around your enemy's territory very long. So Jacob appeased him, reconciliation, and he appeased him as best he could, but he didn't hang around in dangerous territory. That would be called a foolish Jacob. So he convinced Esau, okay, Esau, I'll see you. Go on without me, and I'm going to go this way. <laughs> you go over there, I'll go here. Yes, uh, Jeff, your hand is up. Well, does it work to uh, appease people by giving them somebody else's stuff, like <laughs> uh, say pallets of cash, or say like some other somebody else's country, like the Sudetenland? Right, right. So that's brilliant, right? <laughs> no, <laughs> appeasing as the kings had to learn, appeasing with, with somebody else's possessions doesn't end well for you. <laughs> it has you use your own stuff to appease. Uh, there, there, are, there are certain requirements God has on it. You're going to steal somebody else and we're going to appease them. Uh, that doesn't work so well. Um, anyhow, so it's important to understand. So Jacob showed a certain basic character traits that Messiah admires and advocates for in the, the book of Matthew. He demonstrated that to someone who would like to kill him, which I admit, personally speaking, I've never met anyone who wanted to kill me. But if I ever do, I will try to remember this, try to remember, okay, uh, I don't want to die. Therefore, what do I do instead of arguing with them, which is my normal behavior, don't argue with them. 
Say, okay, be, be submissive. What do you need? It is not in my best interest to perish, nor is it in anybody else's best interest for me to die. Uh, unless, of course, God says, you know, your, your time's up, but that's a different story. Uh, so it is, it is the idea is to love your enemy as yourself requires something from you. It's not just, oh, I feel good toward them. You can feel what you want. Uh, Esau, I don't think, would say, oh, so Jacob, you said you feel better. I'm not mad at you anymore. Uh, that doesn't work so well. You may, you may feel love. It, love is an action word in Hebrew. You actually do something that indicates love. It's not a, oh, I felt good about so-and-so. That doesn't work. It, what are you doing? What, verify, prove it, show, demonstrate. Messiah did the same thing with his with apostles. Hey, you love me. It, go through my flock. Go work for me. Go do something. Follow suit. Match it. Well, Daniel Stephen, by the end, I'll catch you later, guys. God bless you both in your, in your government uh, paperwork. <laughs> Peace. All right. Let's see what. So uh, let's jump through here. So we have Jacob, of course, obviously, how we, how we treat Esau. <clears throat> so Jacob's approach, now that he knows how he had to handle Esau, he has to actually verify Esau's not going to be angry with him. He has to obviously talk to God. You pray about it, right? Which we all do. Pray to, pray to God. Ask him what he's going to answer. And unfortunately for most of us, God doesn't give verbal answers. Sometimes he does. I'm not saying he doesn't speak to you. He doesn't speak to me that way. Um, and in this case, he did not give Jacob a verbal answer either. He gave a physical one, a very painful physical answer. Um, I'm grateful. I don't do with that personally. I, I like my be able to walk normal. Uh, but in, in case, Jacob didn't get that option. So in Jacob's case, he, he stood himself up and did, did all this appeasing work what he could do. Then he prayed to God, all right, God, I've done what I can. I've done what I know how to do, but now it's in your hands. I can't, I can't do this. But Jacob used a technique that Moses uses also, as so does Abraham. It's a technique of prayer, not just praying for stuff, but the words he used, he uses God's words back at him. That's an important technique of prayer. Any of you who ever had children, and you just said, but mom, dad, you said, blah, 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 yada, yada, yada. Try to argue against what, you, what your own words are. Yeah, you your punt. I'm the dad. I said the wife. It doesn't work that way. I'm the mom. Your mom does sometimes. You're not supposed to. Well, it, it, you can't. It, sometimes you guys use it inappropriately. That's that's a separate story. Anyway, the point is that it's hard to argue. <laughs> that's your God does say I'm God. <laughs> he uses the same phrase. Um, so the point is that 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 using God's words back at him. Say, wait a minute. You said yada 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 yada. I did as best I could the requirements to get these things. Therefore, it's in your hands. You said it was to happen. Therefore, make it happen. It's a very effective technique. Moses used it, and God said, yes. Abraham used it, and God said, yes. Jacob uses it, and God said, yes. Because God can't lie. He doesn't lie. So, no, I didn't say that. Yes, he does say it, and he does, he's verified with his word. So Jacob uses God's own words back at him. Says, "Hey, you said this. I did what I could. Here, I. It's in your hands. So do it as you said you would do." So Jacob. So God does so. But the interesting thing is that God doesn't just say, "Okay, Jacob, I got this. It's all fine." What does God send? He sends this spirit being, this angel, this 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 wrestler. And why on earth would God do that? a strange response. 
Well, we've said a little bit about this wrestler and what, it, what, 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 what the function of what they're doing, why he's wrestling with Jacob to understand why God sends it. First of all, Jacob is interested in trying to appease with Esau that because he knows Esau has military might can kill him. The women and children, as he points out, could kill them all. Uh, so this wrestler being sent to him, note, I'm going to speculate. I could be totally dead wrong. I'm going to speculate that angels probably can defeat us if they were allowed to do so. I'm just speculating. I, they were wrestled myself. I'm not that strong. If I was, I still think they're probably stronger. Just a guess, but you can think otherwise. It's okay. In fact, you can just touch the socket. Because joy. That's impressive. It's what I can do. So I think they're pretty strong. But clearly this angel is not interested in just des- destroying Jacob. The angel has made himself of equivalent or similar strength to Jacob. As he could not overpower Jacob, and Jacob could not fully overpower the angel either. I say fully. The angel tried to escape, and he couldn't. So one could argue Jacob actually did, in some ways, overpower the angel. Because they tried to they had to ask him, let me go. I can't, I can't get away. Because uh, you're, you're, you're strong enough, you're, you're clinging on to me too hard. I, I, I can't escape. So one could argue that the angel actually is the one who quit first. Yeah, called uncles, so, so to speak. Um, well, yeah, he's not allowed to be seen by the by the sun. We'll discuss the potential that maybe we can discuss that today. I'm not positive yet. Um, anyhow, but to understand the angel's function, Jacob has the one who has to explain it to us, because I can just guess, but I'm just guessing. But it's fortunate for us that the following chapter, verse ten, Jacob explains what the angel was doing, all right? And chapter, verse, chapter 33, verse 10, Jacob explains when he sees Esau that, uh, I says, no, and this is referring to, 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 when he's talking to Esau regarding uh, uh, the, the plenty of the gifts. He says, no, I beg of you, if I now have found favor in your eyes, then accept my tribute from me inasmuch as I have seen your face, which is like seeing the face of a divine being. And you were appeased by me. Please accept my gift, which is brought to you as much as God has given gracious to me, as much as I have everything. Jacob interprets the angel's visit. The angel's visit was his encounter with Esau. But instead of Esau, the man fighting him to destroy Jacob, the angel fought with him. Not to destroy, but to reconcile himself with his brother. And reconciliation is really, really critical. It's an important step in all forms of understanding and following God. It's hard to do. But reconciliation doesn't cost you nothing. It costs me something when I reconcile with someone. Whether it's humiliation, embarrassment, pain, money, in the case if I, if I owe them something, whatever it be, it's going to cost something to reconcile. When I uh, fought with my sisters as a child, I got spotted for my father. Guess what? That's called reconciliation. You're punished. Okay, now I got corrected. Now, if I was not English anymore, my sisters have moved on. His, the, 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 the encounter is then over. It's done. So reconciliation is a costly. In this case, it cost Jacob something. And this was Esau. The reconciliation was with Esau. But God sent the angels to do it instead of Esau the man. There was a, there was a principle that King David taught us. He said, it's better to be in the hands of God who is merciful 
then this would be in the hands of man who shows no mercy. So if you want to reconcile with someone, better be in God to reconcile with rather than with man. Not that you can't reconcile with man. The point is that God is more merciful. So Esau would have probably killed Jacob if he had to reconcile in this fashion of actually fighting it out, as Esau swore he would do. But in this case, God said, I'm not going to have a man do it, Jacob. An angel is going to do it, which has the ability to have mercy. The angels have kindness given to them. Only the kindness that God has told them to have, mind you. They, they don't have of their own accord. God has granted them this. That's that, that the nature of being an angel. You don't have your own personal free will. But the point is, the angel is granted this. As Dave pointed out, it is better to be the hand, so he is far more powerful, of God who has mercy, has forgiveness, has compassion, than men who have none. Men who have no compassion, no mercy, they don't care how many tears you shed. They're meaningless to men, but to God, they mean something. So the great, the great lesson we learned that King David taught to us, and Jacob, of course, here is experiencing himself. He's scarred. He experienced it, and he got a scar from it. But do we not all get scars when we have to reconcile? How many of you have forgotten the difficult reconciliations you went through? Most of us don't forget them. The difficult ones, we remember. They leave us permanently changed, one way or another, for good or worse. They still leave us permanently changed, which, of course, obviously Jacob does as well. So Jacob interprets the encounter with the, with the angel as his, I guess, a pseudo-encounter, as if he had done so with Esau, as Jacob explains. Esau, I'm seeing your face. I saw the angel face to face. God, I survived the angel. Esau, it's like I'm looking at an angel. I'm surviving you. He, God is, Esau, Jacob is associating the angel's encounter with him as Esau's encounter with him. But Esau said the physical anger fight, it was the tears, the joy, the happiness part of the reconciliation component, which is important, the, 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 the objective of reconciliation. So it's a great, I'm grateful that Jacob is so, is so wise to be able to, to, to interpret things. But I have a question for you. Uh, you can answer the best you can. Either It's a rhetorical question. When the angel rested with Jacob, he said, you have struggled with, with men and with the divine and have prevailed. Now we can go through the list of all the things Jacob went through, struggle with men. Yes, struggle with, with, with Esau in the womb. He was struggling with Esau. He obviously struggled with them. He struggled with Esau uh, during the, birth, the, the, the whole uh, birthright uh, uh, issue. He struggled then. He struggled again with the whole blessing. Uh, struggled, of course, with Laban and the wives and he, because the wives were struggling too and he, Jacob had to deal with that struggles. There were a lot of things he struggled with. How often did Jacob struggle with man, with, with, with divine? With man many times, with the divine? The interesting question. He said, well, clearly it must be, it must be the angels you're referring to. I don't think so. Yes, he struggled with the angel, but I don't think that's what the angel's talking about. Um, let's think of this for just a minute. What lessons did we discuss at the beginning of the Torah portion did Jacob have to learn with Laban? Being tricked, deceived, all those things he went through, learning what it means to being afraid, all those lessons he had to learn. When Jacob returns to fight to meet Esau, is he the same man, same kind of person he was when he left and fl fled to Laban? I don't think he was. He's a different kind of person. He grew up. 
he experienced more. He said, okay, I, I'm going to try to fix this problem. As we learned, Jacob tried to reconcile with Esau before returning to God, before going to his offer with God. So there are certain things Jacob learned through his struggles with men. In my opinion, this is his opinion, I believe all those struggles he had with men, God set them up. I think God set up each one of those encounters. Clearly in the womb, there are two boys, and God told Rebecca, yeah, they're fighting. The younger will be over the older one. But God selected Jacob, set him up. I'm going to put you above your brother down here, even though he's older. So God put Jacob in different places along his path, in my personal opinion, to show and teach Jacob something. Well, teaching him, what did it teach him? All those struggles he had with men were struggles with himself too, with inside of himself. How many times do we struggle with our God, but it's us who have to actually give, on, give in, as opposed to God giving in? When we go through our lessons in life, we struggle at times, not every time, but at times. When those lessons learn something from them, hopefully just once, sometimes we have to repeat them. The goal is that we then grow and gain and improve. Our struggles for those lessons are struggles within ourselves. Of what I must improve or fix or address, my own weaknesses or my own failures or whatever it may be. But is not God walking my path with me? So every struggle with man is actually also a struggle within man that my God has brought me to. Those struggles are valuable, that I'm struggling with God, but I'm struggling with man at the same time. Each struggle with man is a struggle with God. That's my personal opinion. I don't believe that this encounter with the angel is the only instance which Jacob struggles with God. They struggle with God frequently, not in a physical fashion, but in a mental and spiritual fashion. He has to struggle with God. What does Jacob want to do? Versus what does God want him to do? And they're not usually the same thing. They're different. All right? That's my personal opinion. Uh, you can, it, it, it's, it, it's, it's always a struggle. Our lives themselves are always struggle between ourselves and our God, in my opinion. I mean, we continue to struggle with that. Um, Ephesians discusses that as well. So let's go to Ephesians chapter 6. Ephesians 6 discusses this topic in uh, simple terms, uh, as far as uh, briefly, not, 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 mean, uh, not complicated, I mean simple, or briefly. It doesn't, doesn't go into great detail. Ephesians 6 does discuss this a little bit, though. Ephesians 6 discusses the nature of struggling. And if you start starting in verse 10, or jump to verse 10, that's the topic we're discussing, we've got the armor of God. Ephesians 6, verse 10 discusses this topic. It says, Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the, in the evil day, and having done all to stand. 
Stand therefore, having girded your waist with truth, having put on your breastplate of righteousness, and having sh- shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Above all, taking the shield of faith with, with, with which you will be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of spirit, which is the word of God. So in this instruction we have from Ephesians, who is Jacob actually struggling with then? In every encounter, throughout his whole life, who is he struggling with? It's a spiritual struggle. It's a spiritual struggle within, not just from man to man, but man to God. It's a spiritual struggle. Most issues I have in my own personal life, I'm sure you probably are similar, are battling my own desires versus what God wants for me. Most of them are that way. Very rarely do I perceive some outside attack. Vast majority are my internal attacks. I want to do that. But God said I should do that. Well, who's going to win? That's the question. Who's going to win? Put your struggles on and know who you're struggling, who you're fighting against. Because he doesn't usually lose. I've never seen him lose, and I don't think he will. Anyway, so that's been... Oops, lost my pen. There's another one. Let's go for a little bit, because I'm running... Ooh, lower on time. A lot lower than I thought. Uh, Let's see here. We already discussed the bowing down seven times. Esau... Okay, so just for heads up, uh, these two guys are kind of old men. (laughs) Jacob Esau. They're floating around 100 years old when this encounter happens. They're old guys. Uh, they're not young men, not in their 20s and 30s and 40s. They're nearly 100. Um, it, it put, uh, nearly, I say Jacob's probably around 95-ish, thereabouts. Because the reason is because uh, Jacob was 93 when uh, Joseph was born. And this encounter with Esau, Joseph is at least old enough to be in, have an encounter. So it's probably a few years, I'm guessing one or two years, after Joseph was born, that this encounter Esau occurs. So it places both Esau and Jacob at 95 years old. These are old guys. Um, and being 95 years old, they aren't quite as young whippersnappers as they once were. So they grew up a little bit. But there is something I pointed out to you earlier when we discussed this, that Jacob did his best to, to, to reconcile with Esau. However, he didn't hang out with him. They went their separate ways. That's an important thing to not negate. That means something. Jacob isn't foolish. He knows the coolness that Esau has. Um, note that when Laban, when he departed Laban the second time, they departed with kisses and hugs and tears and a good big old meal. They separated, but they're ways. When they depart with Esau, Esau goes one way and Jacob, his whole family, turned tail around the other. So just because you reconcile doesn't mean you're going to push your luck. They aren't best of friends. They still have their separations. That's okay. You reconcile. You aren't aren't becoming good buddies to hang out drinking pals. Um, So they didn't hang out too long. Uh, I imagine that Jacob probably did not trust Esau too closely because Esau has a history. Um, We are probably not going to have enough time. We might have time to go through Obadiah's encounter. But God has issues with Esau also. Not the ones who say read strictly about in our Torah, but he has problems. These are things he didn't like about him, the man himself, the character. Uh, there's a reason why God is selected between Esau and Jacob and chose Jacob from the womb onward. These men are not the same kind of person. So Obadiah does a great job discussing the nature of Edom and Esau. 
Now, Obadiah is talking. He's writing his book. We'll go, we'll go ahead and jump into it. We'll, go to, we'll come back to Dina if we have time, maybe later. It's a secondary story, which I, it's, it's, it's still important, but it's still secondary. Let's see. Just Obadiah, because Obadiah is discussing the cutter with Esau. You'll find Obadiah. It's a small little book. There it is. It's just for Jonah in my book. So Obadiah uh, discussed this. This, this is the, a, a prophecy occurring against Esau, against Edom in particular, but against Esau, not, uh, the timing is a little bit fuzzy. So I'm not saying this is a final prophecy for them, but it, there is some interesting points. So Obadiah, most likely, there's a lot of different, different candidate option people, beliefs for us who he actually was, because he doesn't tell anything about the guy as far as the author. But the timing here, and most likely is sometime during the Jeroboam's reign, uh, because the, the nature of what's being discussed here in this, in this, in this chapter, uh, discussing the nature of what Esau hit in it, the Edomites, what they do during a particular invasion that took Jerusalem. So this was that, that Obadiah, not the one during Nebuchadnezzar's conquering, because that would have been a very different outcome, because Edom was taken at the same time, and there was no casting of lots. As it goes here. Anyway, so Obadiah chapter one, actually, there's only one chapter, actually. Is it one chapter? Yeah, there is just one chapter. So Obadiah in verse one. I'm going to read through this relatively quickly. There's only a few highlights I want to point out to you and read along with it. I know, I love things to occur. The vision of Obadiah Thus says the Lord God concerning Edom, we have heard a report from Jehovah, and a messenger has been sent among the nations saying, Arise, let us arise up against her for battle. Behold, I will make you small among the nations. You shall be greatly despised. The pride of your heart has deceived you, you who dwell in the clefts of the rock, whose habitation is high, you who say in your heart, Who will bring me down to the ground? Though you exalt yourself as high as an eagle, though you set your nest among the stars, from there I will bring you down, says Jehovah. If thieves had come to you, if robbers by night, oh, how you will be cut off. Would they not have stolen till they had enough? If great gatherers had come to you, would they not have left some gleanings? Oh, how Esau shall be searched out, how his hidden treasuries shall be sought after. All the men of your confederacy shall force you to the border. The men at peace with you shall deceive you and prevail against you. Those who eat your bread shall lay a trap for you. No one is even aware of it. Will I not in that day, says Jehovah, even destroy the wise men from Edom and understanding from the mountains of Esau? Then your mighty men, O Timnon, shall be, shall be dismayed to the end that everyone from the mountains of Esau may be cut off by slaughter. For your violence against your brother Jacob, shame shall cover you, and you shall be cut off forever. In the day that you stood on the other side, in that day the strangers carried captives his forces, when foreigners entered his gates and cast lots for Jerusalem, even you were one of them. But you should not have gazed upon the day of your brother, in the day of his captivity, nor should you have rejoiced over the children of Judah in the day of their destruction, nor should you have spoken proudly in the day of their distress. You should not have entered the gate of my people in the day of their calamity. Indeed, you should not have gazed on their affliction in the day of their calamity, nor laid hands on their substance in the day of their calamity. You should not have stood at the crossroads to cut off those among them who had escaped, nor should you have de delivered up those among them who remained in the day of their distress. 
For the day of Jehovah upon the nations is near. As you have done, it shall be done to you. Your reprisal shall return upon your own head. For you have drunk on my holy mountain, so shall all the nations drink continually. Yes, they shall drink and swallow, they shall not, they shall be as though they had never been. But on Mount Zion there shall be deliverance, and there shall be holiness. The house of Jacob shall possess their possessions. The house of Jacob shall be a fire, and the house of Joseph a flame. But the house of Esau shall be the stubble. They shall kindle them and devour them, and no soil shall remain from the house of Esau. For Jehovah has spoken. The inhabitants of the south shall possess the mountains of Esau and the Philistines lowland. They shall possess the fields of Ephraim and the fields of Samaria. Benjamin shall possess Gilead, and the captains of this host, the children of Israel, shall possess the land of the Canaanites, as far as Zarephath. The captains of Jerusalem who are in Shephard shall possess the, the cities of the south, and then saviors shall come to Mount Zion to judge the mountains of Esau, and the kingdom of the, uh, the kingdom shall be Jehovah's. That's a prophecy from Obadiah against Esau. Again, it takes place most likely during Jeroboam's reign. Was well, Jeroboam one of, one of the Jeroboams? Uh, about uh, oh, eight hundred or so, give or take, uh, uh, BC. So, in this instance, we discuss certain needs that that Esau has. So, these are the natures of Esau, and that they're they are happy or participants in Jacob's destruction. If you recall, when Israel comes out of Egypt, they start circling around, around and around and around and around, around for forty some odd years. They try to pass Edom's border. What does Edom do? They say, oh yeah, sure, here's your route. They go right through. No. Say, you don't put a foot on my land or I'll kill you. So the nature of Edom and Esau is not a positive one. Just because they reconciled men doesn't mean they're now good friends. They are separate still. So I bring up to you a hypothesis. Um, the title given to Jacob, Israel. Now, people tell me, well, it means this, it means that, blah, blah, blah. It's just the details of what it could or couldn't mean. It doesn't really matter. The reason his name was given is because he theoretically struggled with God and struggled with men. Um, so it has been interpreted in many ways that, 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 that the name Israel means either one, who, either, either one who struggles with God or can be a prince of God. It's a little hard to say the exact terminology of what it actually means because we people debate on that of what what it's what it's what it's what's meaning is, but he showed a messianic characteristic trait, which means in that process, in this process which we're looking at our twelve portion, Jacob or Israel becomes a messianic figure, which means he does something the Messiah does. Help us recognize who Messiah is. Messiah shows up thousands of years later, right? In what characteristic trait does Jacob or Israel show in this fashion, this Torah portion? He showed something very particular, which we discussed quite, quite in depth, the idea of reconciling with somebody else whom you don't necessarily like. And you're not going to be friends with them. They're not going to be best of buddies but you still have to make right the mistakes you made. When Messiah came, how long did he stay? Well, his ministry lasted, some argue a year, could be a couple of years, a few years long, not real long. Then he left. Did Messiah reconcile us to God? 
yes. But did he, did, 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 did he hang out with us for, for like the rest of our lives? No. <laughs> Why? Good doesn't corrupt evil. Evil corrupts good. You don't hang around that which is nature, by nature evil. Yes, you gave the opportunity. Okay, now we've, we've done a reconciliation. We have it as how we can relationship with God again. So I said, good job. Now I'm, I'm out of here. He doesn't hang around. He doesn't stick around where there's problems and people with issues. What would have happened had he remained? Well, as we, as we read for, for our Gospels, they would have made him king. That was their plan. To make him king. That was the goal. That was the objective. Had he stuck around, what would have happened? That would have happened. And then he'd have to rule all of us. Our flesh and our blood and our weaknesses and our failures. He didn't want to do that. That was not the price that God wanted for him to, for him to live to do. Just because you reconcile doesn't mean you hang around. You don't necessarily become best of friends. You just reconcile and move on. So in, in, in this messianic figure that we learned from Jacob, he reconciled with his brother, but then he moved on. He went to where God called him. In this case, was not to be a hanging out with his brother or not hanging out with, because Messiah is our brother, right? He's our older brother. That's the theory. That, 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 that's a description term. He doesn't hang out with us. He's the younger siblings. We're not that great. <laughs> we just aren't. <laughs> he has better, better things to do. So the messianic figure that Jacob reveals in, 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 in the character is, is, is how he treats his brother. Now, we look at this in a prophecy regarding Esau and Obadiah gives us. What do we learn about Esau? What character trait does he contain? Joy and happiness at the destruction of his brother. There's your character's trait of Esau. Happiness to see his brother suffer. Maybe he saw Jacob limping and said, ah, good for him. Who knows? I don't, know, I don't know. But he wants to see his brother suffer. Even though they're reconciled, they still wanted suffering. Now, we have an instruction that, you know, you can't hate somebody without a cause. And uh, Esau doesn't really have a good cause. But in particular, Jacob has no cause to hate anyone. Even Laban didn't hate him. So Jacob had a pretty good messianic character trait of the nature of how you deal and treat other people. That's important to remember. He's showing these character traits. But the same character that Jacob shows, we learn that Esau has his own character, which is joy and happiness at the destruction of Jacob and his descendants. Generations go by. Esau has joy and happiness of descendants of Edomites at the destruction of the descendants of Jacob. They like that. They're happy with it. They enjoy it. They want to participate in it. This is a character trait that God says, I hate this. Esau have I hated. Remember? Esau have I hated. Why? Inside the man, there is a character flaw. He enjoys the suffering of his brother. That's not a good characteristic trait. Esau have I hated. And here's an example. Obadiah points out, all right, Esau, your time's coming to an end. And guess what? It did. <laughs> so, um, just for, 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 for history, uh, Nebuchadnezzar did a pretty, pretty good number on Esau and the descendants thereof. So much so that they got pretty badly beaten up. And then later on, they had to flee Edom, the territory of Edom. They all left. Guess they went? Southern Israel. They all had to flee East, 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 and go to southern Israel. 
we they they renamed themselves to Edom. The the E D O M. It's I D U M. They we 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 spelled it a little bit differently, but they wound up hanging out in Jerusalem. In southern Israel, and then eventually Jerusalem, because King Herod was one of this was, was their descendant. So King Herod, as we know, of Messiah, and all the kings of, of Israel at the time, which King Herod onward, meaning to the tail end of Israel's uh, independence. Well, you could argue independence, more like serfdom. But anyway, uh, so King Herod, of course, was an Edomite, and the Edomites they all got together and they actually fought against Titus, which tried to take Jerusalem in seventy A.D. Uh, Titus was uh, the son of the Roman emperor uh, Vespian. I forgot the guy's name. I forgot the guy's name. Anyway. So Titus winds up sacking Jerusalem, burnt the ground, and he kills all the Edomites he finds. Slaughters them all. And guess what? There's no longer a record of Edom in history from that point onward. So Obadiah's instruction here that, hey, you will be judged, and there will be no survivor remaining. That's what happened. So, even though we would think, well, it's 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 in the future. No, it doesn't have to be in the future. It was the future for them, and the past for us. All the sins of Esau. Bye. Why? Because inside themselves, they enjoyed the suffering of their brother. So God says, bye. Reconciliation. It's an external thing we do that Jacob showed and also an internal one that Jacob demonstrated. But Esau didn't. And so, as God said, Esau I've hated so long. Inside you is an important component to reconcile. So, um, we have enough time, a little bit. I'll give you like, well, probably not really. So, so it's already 2.30. Uh, it's probably discussing uh, the, the nature of Dina's uh, interpretation as far as what happens to her. It's a totally separate story. I probably... Question cover too much detail. Uh, it, are there any questions about Dina's story? It's pretty obvious. <laughs> uh, she went out partying. Yes, uh, Jeff. It was an in- interesting observation that was we were going through uh, Obadiah that um, it was like, wow, that sounds familiar. And uh, <laughs> I realized what it, what it was is that it's, it's a, um, you see it again in Revelation chapter 18 oh, do you? Um, about Babylon. Oh, Babylon fallen, fallen is a great, but down in verse uh, seven it says, you know, to the degree that she glorified herself and lived sensuously, to the same degree, uh, give her torment and mourning. For she says in her heart, I sit as a queen and am not a widow and will never see mourning. For this reason, in one day her plagues will come. It was like very, very similar to what you see in the opening verses of uh, Obadiah relating to. Edom, and very interesting right. that you know you have Edom and Babylon, you know, showing up together here as the day of the Lord. <laughs> Funny, huh? <laughs> yeah, it, it it shows it shows a, a character with inside them. I, I think at least that there's a nature between how they how they attach themselves. Where they to, they're, they're very similar in what they do, and I think to be fair, there's probably a, a few nations that have a similar viewpoint that they actually enjoy. Not nations like government, I mean, as in peoples. Individuals as well as groups of people have a viewpoint in life, and I don't quite understand what how they think their end will be, but uh, it doesn't look well. No matter how, how what you do, your 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 viewpoint in life, whether Babylon or Edom or anywhere else for that matter, when you have joy and happiness and suffering of others, 
I, I don't know how it, it's a character I don't understand that way. I can't comprehend that character very well. Make but, it up in uh, volume. <laughs> yeah, make it up volume. <laughs> Just kill more. Um, it, it's a character I don't understand. So it, it's something which I don't know. Yeah, if you're gonna, if their end is that well or that that harsh, uh, I would want to make some influence, some change. I mean, to be honest with you, when I think I'm wrong on something, I try to change it. No, I'll, 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 I won't do it anymore. You know, I shouldn't do this because I, I believe I'm wrong. When somebody else is wrong, I don't believe it. Well, then I stay where I'm at. So uh, my guess is that Edom, they clearly or didn't, and Babylon too, did not believe that they were doing anything wrong. Not that they had no personal desire to do right. Or they, they think they're doing fine. They're doing right somehow. Um, and I'm not sure where their logic comes from. But in Edom's case, in Esau's case, uh, his hatred of Jacob clearly, inside of his own heart or mind, was justified. He believed he was right to justify the hate, hate, hate of his brother. Jacob has no reason to hate Esau, but Esau believed he had reason to hate Jacob. And that hatred needs to not be there. It's a hard thing to dispose of, but if you can't dispose of it, it doesn't go away. And unfortunately, it ruins you. It destroys you internally, which is what happened. Um, yeah, it's interesting. They have, they have similar terms, similar concepts being discussed as far as the total destruction. Any other comments or questions around this tour portion? Uh, Pamela, your hand is flagged. I know earlier. Let's do it there anymore. <laughs> All right. So, as far as uh, Dina is concerned, uh, obviously, the, we'll end with a few few minor um, details about her. Oh, yes. Now we can hear you. Go ahead. Okay. Okay. Uh, my question is: uh, If uh, Esau's people are all gone, uh, the cities are still there. Like Basra is still there. Right. Yes, the cities did not the same. So, I, so we're referring to Edom in, in particular. Um, Edom uh, had, historically speaking, had particular groups that became dominant with inside their 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 nations or tribes. And those dominant groups, the ones that you are, have been destroyed, there may be some some uh, sub subgroups. For example, Timna became the top the, the top guy. His 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 family line became the dominant king like king like lines of the nation of Edom. Now all the descendants thereof that was all wiped out, and their their dominance was all wiped out. There may be scattered individuals here or there that don't get destroyed. There's, as God has been kind and demonstrated in the past, there he seems to always take a small remnant, remnant here or there of a few individuals that he doesn't wipe out completely. But as a group, as a nation, as a congregation, they are gone. So the nation, oh. the cities may still exist, but they as a, are not Edom anymore. There are some other new people that have moved in, that have taken over and kept the same city names. So uh, the, the individuals may still exist scattered here or there, but as a body, as a power, as a, as, as a group force or as a government force, they are no longer in existence. So, you know, today we kind of do a little tongue-in-cheek when it comes to, to calling Saudi Arabia Edom. They're really not. Saudi Arabia is a whole different nation of people, not actually Edomites. Yes, they occupy a portion of the territory Edom once occupied, and that small portion has a distinct ethnic difference in the major population of Saudi Arabia. Distinct ethnic, I mean, there is some 
some physical characters that are different from them, both philosophically and 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 and, and uh, physically and, and philosophically. Um, you can't necessarily say that they are still Edom. They probably aren't, because historically speaking, Edom was booted out, like literally booted out. Everything was taken over. Um, so there may be a few scatterings here and there, but they are not in a dominant control of anything anymore. They've been wiped out pretty. So heavily. they're basically Saudis. But yeah, for the most part, they're all Saudis. Like I said, there are some ethnic groups within that northern, north, north left, uh, north uh, western section of Saudi Arabia that is a little bit different than the Saudi uh, uh, race as a whole, but they're subtly different. So they have a slight, slight, slight different dialect of Arabic than Saudi, Saudi Arabic, just a slight. And they have a few different traditions, that are a little different, but not a lot. Um, and they, they do have some differences. And so some have argued, well, maybe they're actually the Edomite descendants. You can argue anything, but this doesn't make it true. So Edom as a whole, as a government, is no longer around, as a people group is no longer around. But there may be individuals scattered here or there that may still be, that God did not wipe them out completely. Because after all, they are still descendants of Abraham and Isaac. They still are worthy yeah, of cousins. life. They still are still cousins, even though they may not be as a, as a group body, as a house, they're no longer existence, but they still, as, as, as a people's groups, as individuals, sorry, not groups, as individuals, they still have a right to promises God gave to Abraham. Does that make sense? Hopefully it does. Mm, okay. By the way, their territory yeah. will be ruled, as Obadiah says, by Judah, or by, sorry, by, by, by Jacob. Jacob will rule that territory again. So be under their subject, which is good. Any um, comments or questions? Well, also maybe think about it this way. Pretty much everybody here within the sound of my voice um, is of European descent, and we could probably trace our ancestry back to countries such as England or Norway or Russia, right? And you do a DNA test, you find out that you're X percentage of Norwegian or Russian or whatever, right? But our ancestors back 300, 400, 200 years ago, when they left England or Russia or wherever, we might be ethnically English, but we are not English. We're American. Right. And so yeah. insofar as we might be ethnically English, that's all fine and good. And God chose to create us with those components, right? He's the one that fashioned us in our mother's womb, but that doesn't make us English or Norwegian or Russian or whatever. We are a different people. And that was because of choices of our ancestors. Whenever they came here for whatever reason, they were running away from the czar or they're running away from King James or whoever they might have been running away from. They came here and created a new nation and in a sense a new people. Now, he didn't destroy England or Russia or anything like that, like he destroyed Edom. We are still here. We still, we are here. We exist from those people. So you think about the same thing with the Edomites. He didn't destroy every single Edomite. Living captive. soul, right. <laughs> he basically took the soul away. He destroyed their royal family. Mm -hmm. Took that away. Okay. So they turned around and they were absorbed into other communities or whatever. And they may genetically exist as descendants of Abraham, but they don't no longer have that cohesive title of Edomite and no longer have that cohesive culture or whatever that culture might have been. Just like here in America, we came from England, but we don't necessarily have an English culture. We have an American culture. We're different. Okay. Um, I, I also think that another way we can look at it, where we can apply it to our own lives now, nowadays, here in the 21st century, is that God doesn't like people who are like Edom 
or who are like the descendants of Esau, for example, they don't want, he doesn't like people who are cruel, people who cheat, people who kill other people for their own interest. And, um, and he wants us to get rid of those, at least personally, he wants us to get rid of those thoughts that might borderline on that or, or what have you. So he doesn't want us as his children or as, or as uh, people who follow his Torah to be people who are cruel to other people, people who do things to serve our own self-interests. Um, one, a, a commandment that God gives specifically when dealing with the descendants of Esau is Amalek. He says, you will destroy the memory of Amalek. Well, like Tammy said, there are no longer people called the Amalekites. They're long gone. I mean, there was genetics and stuff, but um, the, the idea of the Amalekites or what, they, or what they did to the Israelites, which we can basically chalk up today as anti-Semitism or being against the Israelites or being against his people is something that God doesn't want us to do or he doesn't like other people to do to his people. So while it might, all, while it might be a, a genetic thing, uh, a thing that we can, that at least I like to think of it as is God doesn't want us to be like those people. And he doesn't like people who are like those people. The characters are straight. It is actually that Amalek. I went to school with a guy named Amalek. His last, that was last, <laughs> his last name was Amalek. Uh, was, uh, his father was, was Neil. His, his name was Sunil, son of, son of Neil. And the last name was Amalek. Uh, it's spelled the same way as, yep, that's where they're from. They're from that part of the Middle East. So, yep, that, guess what? They said the, the descendants of human beings of individual races still exist here, spattered here and there. But the nation of Amalek is long since gone. Three individuals around, but the nation's long since gone, and, and so, and so, Edom same way. All of all of the same way is Tammy's, Tammy's point is correct. You have a scattering of people here or there from all different groups of people. There are a, a funky mix of this, that, and other thing, which is fine. But uh, as a nation, as a, as a power, they, they are gone. Which means, in my in my viewpoint, that means they have no right to return as a power again. See, if, if, if you are not destroyed as a nation, you still exist as a nation. When God destroyed Israel as a nation, he told them, I'm going to return you as a nation. Edom, no such, no such luck. When he destroyed Edom, I, he will not return Edom as a nation. They have no longer a right to return as a nation again. They will remain the house of Edom will remain destroyed. All that makes sense. So there would be yeah. an Amalek the same way. Amalek has no longer ha- has no right to return as a nation again, unlike the tribes and nations of Israel who do. So, so the destruction was is a permanent one on the house, and not say every individual flesh blood human, but a permanent one. Yes, uh, Shay, your hand is up. Oh, you're muted. Have to unmute yourself, dear. We can't hear you. Thank you. Sorry about that. Um, this might swing us off on a tangent. And so if you want to address it later, or you can send me the answer through an email or something, that's fine. But um, about Egypt and Sodom um, being restored, is that, am I correct in, in understanding that there's a promise that they will be restored as well? For Egypt, yes. For Sodom, I know that there is references to it as the day of judgment will be easier on them so they get judged. 
but I can't say there's no restoration of, of, of a nation of Sodom, but this individual Sodom people, apparently, yes, there is a judgment for them that God has reserved for them to discuss and have a conversation. But Egypt remains as a, or is, is restored as a true long-term power that exists as servants to God, but still they get to remain as existence. I mean, today we still have Egypt, of course, right. but as, an, as, as, as a nation. But yes, God apparently points out in, in the prophets that in his reign, when, he's, when, when Messiah is in charge of stuff, Egypt is its own nation. It has and its also, own king, its own people. And, the, and he says that there's Egypt and Israel and one other, and it's like they're, they're, they're the three sisters. Uh, there's Egypt, Egypt Israel. Uh, well, Who's the other one? There's a few they browse off, but I don't. I'm sorry. I yeah, I'd, I'd have to look at the, the details beyond that. But yeah, there are actually multiple nations still recorded, still still implied the list, because uh, Zechariah points that out. He says, "Hey, the nations across the whole globe are still independent nations that still exist. Yeah, they much like how uh, we have governors over states, and they will have kings over their nations, but they're still servants, submissive to the mm-hmm. Messiah as their ultimate king. So mm-hmm. they will still those will still exist, and I do not know how many there will be." Whether he reverts them back to the 70 people, 70 nations, or he keeps them all there. I forgot how many there are, like 200, I forgot how many nations, a whole bunch of them. I've mm-hmm. lost all the number of how many there are today. But uh, he may not come back, back down to the original 70, who knows. But either way, they'll still have their own individual borders that exist because they have an obligation to offer God uh, to, at, at holy days, actually. <laughs> You're required to come, like it or not, kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, anyhow, so yeah, so some of the will be returned. But obviously, Edom will not be one of them, as as it clearly appears. Edom will not be one of them, and neither will I. Uh, Larry, your hand's been flagged for forever. You, you, you want to unmute yourself? We can hear what you have to say. What's your question? Well, I was wondering about your statement that Messiah, you know, re- reconciled us to God and then left, and physically left. I mean, spiritually left. <laughs> yeah, that's what I'm going to. I was going to say. Yeah. He said he would never leave us. Right. Right. Us. Said, very, yeah. Many many things like that. So, right. I, I I have a wonder. I wonder about after his resurrection, uh, wasn't he beyond being corrupted? He said he had um, all power on heaven and earth. Right. He'd be out of that point. Correct. He, but he, he I refer to physical as far as his passing away. He doesn't remain here as a flesh and blood person to rule as he was going to be made king. As you recall, in the gospel, they point out they were ready to make him a king right then and there. And he's like, you know, oh, it can happen. So he kind of dangled his way around it. So it, it, it was, it was, it, it was, it was not to be made king because if he was made king as a flesh blood man, he'd still be hanging out here a bunch of flesh blood people. You know, wouldn't want to do that. So he had to separate him king, that. Then? The people were. Um, I forgot, they were ready to make him. I forgot which. Where, where, where is the gospel? It's toward the tail end before he gets. That sounds like arrested. the George Washington story. It kind of is in some ways. Um, I had to look it up again where the, where the verse is. They're, but the people were, were cheering and ready, ready to make him king. I, Jay, you I don't were, have time to look for it. You were muted when you said that. So, yeah, they, they, I forgot where, where it is as far as where, where it records it. But the people themselves, not the leadership, but the individual citizenry, were ready to make him a king. I don't remember where it is. Somebody find the address. You can You're talking about when he came into Jerusalem? It could be. I don't recall where it's, which scripture yeah, it points out to That it. was one of those... One of those events. I'm not sure the gospel is recorded in. I think there's a couple spots where it's where it references the fact that the people they, they, wanted they, to make him a king. Well, exactly. So if he had remained flesh and blood, and well, we do want to make him a king. 
Right, but not at that moment in time. Not that that form. (laughs) Not the one that's going to get old and die. Uh, Well, it doesn't get old and die. Um, Anyhow, any questions or comments around this Torah portion? Oh, yeah. One uh, one last thing, you know, related to what we were referring to earlier. Um, uh, Some some of what uh, is can be confusing and sometimes challenging when some of these nations are referenced in the prophetic books and the apocalyptic books is that, you know, you've got the case of physical descendants of these nations. Right. Then you've got also the case of the, um, as Jared was mentioning earlier, the, the character of those nations, what those characters were like. And then also there's the possibility of, you know, they, the Prince of Persia, Right, the idea of the principality, the spirit behind those nations. So you've got those three, at least three possibilities when you see some of these nations being referenced, and why you see them referenced again, like in Revelation, it it mentions you know Jerusalem, and then it also calls it Sodom. So which is it? Is it Jerusalem or is it Sodom? Well, (laughs) it is uh, a place that has taken on a different character. Mm -hmm. So that is true. That is true. and that's one of the things that I did note. Uh, I forgot. I think it was. I forgot the name. What which country it was? Some European country. Um, the gentleman who who was president one time went in. It came to office, and he, he wrote a book about it. Uh, and he was he he went on campaigning for one thing. When he got there, his whole character changed while he was in office. I can't remember who he was, but the guy was. He said it was the strangest thing. And then when he left office, he went back to it. It's like what just happened to me. How, how did I not do what I said I would do, and I did what I said I wouldn't do? That makes no sense. It's like I, I didn't have control over myself. Why? Why? Why is this case? He was Khrushchev. I could be off the exact guy who he wrote a book about it. He was frustrated with himself. That is it. It's like he reacted like his whole countenance just his whole character changed while he was in charge. Um, and I think that's probably more common than not. Not to say that politicians necessarily recognize that. But it's probably more common than not. So, in my opinion, that yeah, there is a spirit that may still that may or may not still exist. It's very possible that when God destroyed the house of Edom, He wiped out the spirit too. I don't know. He may have not. If He didn't wipe the spirit out, the spirit still exists, and the people in that area may have just been obeying whatever spirit that happened to have been. I don't know. I'm not in charge of that. I, I'm not. I'm not privy to that information. But that is possible. Um, there is obviously the mental state of Edom is alive and well. We can see that in the modern day world. The viewpoint of the outward appearance, your fly inward, your joy, the happiness, and suffering with the people. That still is around today. So that's not gotten rid of. But anyhow, any comments or questions? All right, we'll conclude with a prayer then. Almighty God, our great Father, thank you for our Shabbat day of rest, our time to study and to, and to listen to your voice. We ask you to bless us, Father, to follow what is fair and just in your eyes. May you grant us peace and wisdom, Father, to teach our children and grandchildren the way of your, of your truth, your direction. They will grow, they will thrive in the path that we are all on, we blessing to us and to them and unto our descendants. It is a good path, Father. Help us, Father, to be trusting people, to kind to one another, to respect one another, Father. For you have shown us to do so. 
We ask your blessing upon us, Father, the rest of our time with one another. We glorify you, Father, in Yeshua's name. Amen. You've been listening to a discussion at Hallel Fellowship. If you would like to hear more discussions or if you have any questions, visit the website at Hallel.info. That's H-A-L-L-E-L dot I-N-F-O. Hallel.info. Hallel.info.